Uh, every year, thousands of runners gather in Australia to compete in the annual ultra marathon. Well, how far is that? I'm glad you asked. It's 543.7 miles from Sydney, Australia to Melbourne. So I, I just checked Google Maps just to see like how big is it? I mean, it's big, it's a big, big run. Uh, it's about a nine hour drive if you were to drive it. On foot, it takes about five days to finish. Uh, just thinking about that it makes me want to pass out. Just thinking, yeah, just I'll quit before I even start. And in 1983, uh, a young man who was 61 years old uh, named Cliff Young entered the competition. Uh, he walked to the starting block just like every other runner and assumed the position. Of course, he was laughed at. People were like, what are you doing here? And he, he apparently started in, in, his, in his farming overalls and later he changed clothes. But he started in his overalls. People thought he was being silly. They asked him, how do you train for something like this? Like, how, how did you get here? He said he, had, he didn't have a whole lot of training, but when he, ever since he was young, they didn't have any tractors or horses on their farm. And as a boy, he had to chase down about 2,000 sheep across 2,000 acres when a storm would come. So he thought he was fit to train. When the race began, Cliff was dead last, um, shuffling along, it said. Uh, to finish this run, typically what would happen is so you'd run about 18 hours during the day, which just sounds insane. I mean, 18 hours of, being, of moving, and you typically sleep about six hours at night to refresh. But Cliff did not do that. Instead, he slept only two hours per night. He did this each night, and as he progressed, he continued to pass more and more runners. Steadfast and disciplined in his running, Cliff would eventually, because of this, pass every single runner to be first place and to win the race in five days, 14 hours, and 35 minutes, which was a new record at the time, beating the guy in second by 10 hours. So the Christian life, like that man, uh, requires endurance. It requires steadfastness to finish the race. And in our life, we notice that many who enter the Christian life run very well. However, some fall out, some are disqualified, and some Christians barely even cross. So if you're a Christian, your greatest concern, like mine, should be focused on how you finish. Don't you want to finish well? Don't you want to finish to begin with? And the Christian life is harder, I think, than a 543.7 mile run. And to show this, Paul is going to encourage us of how to run and how to finish well. So first, if you look at verse 24, Paul's going to open with an illustration. He's going to paint a picture of what the Christian life looks like. And then he's going to give us two encouragements to run well. So look at verse 24 and 25. Here's first the illustration that Paul gives. He says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So in Corinth, I think I mentioned it maybe a few weeks ago, uh, they had something called the biannual Isthmian Games, which were second to the Olympics. So this is every other year. They're very well known. They're very popular. Um, if ESPN Corinth was there, this would be on their channels. I mean, it was just the Isthmian Games were always going on every other year. And at these, at these athletic events, they had racing, wrestling, boxing, throwing javelins and discs, the long jump, chariot racing. They even had poetry reading and singing. But for the Corinthians and for us, what is the race? Paul's talking about a race. What race is he referring to? Well, as you probably imagine, it's the Christian life. And we can know that just by 
general reading of the Bible. Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, you are running well. In Hebrews chapter 12, Paul says, let us run the race that is set before us. And probably most clearly, that you, the text that most of you probably know, is in 2 Timothy where Paul says, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. So the, the race that Paul's referring to is the Christian life. The Christian life is not a walk. It's not a stroll through a summer meadow. It's a race. It requires running and exertion. So what is the point of runners running? Well, as you're probably imagining, it's to win. Uh, I've done a 5K before, uh, a couple with my dad, and I did not go just to get fresh air. Um, I knew I wasn't going to win because I'm not that good, but I was planning to win my age group, which I never did because I was always in the group with 19 to 24 year olds and I got smoked every year. But I didn't run just to, just to look outside and see trees. I wanted to win. I wanted to actually win and compete. And in a race, maybe, maybe you've heard it said before, you don't, or in a, in a competition, you don't win the silver. What do you do? You lose the gold, right? Hey, I won silver. Okay. So you're, you're the first loser. Good job, right? You, you want to win the gold, right? That's why you run. That's the point of the race. And yet in the Christian life, all Christians can run for the gold. So there's not just one winner in the Christian life. Everyone can win the gold. So that's the point. But to do so, it requires striving. Uh, Luke chapter 13, Jesus says this, strive to enter through the narrow door. The path that Jesus describes is a narrow door. He also speaks of a narrow way. So to follow Christ, we must follow him through the narrow door, which also requires that we first die to ourselves and take up the cross. Now, look what Paul says. So first, that's the illustration. Now he commands you what to do. Look at the command. Look at verse 24 again. So run that you may obtain it. Run that you may attain the end of the Christian life, which is the crown that you would, that you would reach glory, that you'd reach heaven. That's, that's the end of the race, right? And perhaps you wear this, that your life depends on how you finish. Sluggards in the Christian life do not often last very long. So the question you must ask yourself is, am I running well? Are you aware that this earth is only a training ground? It is a temporary fraction of your life compared to eternity. How are you running? My favorite dead guy, I quote, I think almost every week besides Spurgeon is a guy named Thomas Watson. He said this, run the life so that if we could, if we somehow lost the Bible, it might be found again in our lives. So lay your life down here. And Christ will promise to crown you there. Isn't that why you run? This is why the book of Hebrews says this, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So the question again must be asked, as of today, how are you running? If God were to snatch you off the field and stand you before the judgment seat and say, how are you running? What would you say? How do you evaluate your running? Are we not all in need of endurance? I can tell you right off the bat that I certainly am in need of endurance. I need help to run well. I need encouragement. I need faith. And perhaps you, either now or in times past or in times future, you will find yourself one day on the Christian sidelines gasping for air. I am exhausted. I can't run today. Perhaps you're, you're doubting if you can run any longer. 
Or maybe you need encouragement to hurry up. Maybe your pace has slow and slowed so much. You're thinking, have I even ran at all? Have I just been walking? That should be concerning. Look at verse 25. And every athlete exercises self-control in all things. So again, in the ancient world, in the Olympics, um, in, in Roman period, you're required to set aside 10 months to train they had a way to prove that, like you'd be set aside for 10 months. They'd actually watch you train, and they'd have ways to prove it. And so we assume there's a similar timetable for these, the, the Isthmian games. There's some kind of, well, you're required to train, right? You can't just walk in and say, right, I'll just give it a stab. Well, you've got to train, right? There's some kind of training required. Uh, training requires self-control in all areas of life. For example, in the Olympics that we host every, every four years, uh, the average threshold, so like people like Michael Phelps, uh, Katie Ledecky, the ones that we think, oh, those are the good ones. Those are the ones that, that we, the names we know, right? Over their lifetimes, starting about from age six to about where they are now, uh, they've been training about 10,000 hours. That's like the minimum. Usually if you hit that threshold, you'll probably go pro. Um, they usually have strong personal trainers, right? They start very, very young. They have scheduled sleeping, scheduled eating, scheduled workout times, eat this after you work out, don't eat this, make sure you go to bed this time, stretch here, do this. Everything is scheduled. Everything is orderly. And why is that? Again, because Thomas Watson said the Christian life is military. It requires discipline. It is difficult. Now, when you read self-control... That's probably a discouraging word. But the good news is that self-control is very difficult. Let me say that again. Self-control is very difficult. So why is that good news? When you think of self-control, what is the first verse that pops into your brain? For me, it is probably Galatians chapter 6, which is part of the fruit of the Spirit. And part of the fruit of the Spirit is what? It's self-control. So the good news is that self-control is a gift. Uh, Jerry Bridges, if you ever want to read an author who everything he writes is helpful. He just died maybe five, six years ago. Everything he writes is super, super simple, super rich. A man named Jerry Bridges. I have most of his books. I recommend him very highly. He wrote this. Self-control is not control of oneself through your own willpower, but rather control of oneself through the power of the Holy Spirit. So therefore... Can we just sit back as Christians and let God do the work? Maybe you've heard the phrase, oh, we just need to let go and let what? And just sit back, let God do it, just, just watch. Is that correct? This says self-control, but how do you let God do it if it's self-control? How do you do that? We are promised the gift of self-control, but we ourselves must seize control of ourselves. It is an act of God's grace through your willing that you are self-controlled. So the miracle is that Christians can be self-controlled, but you have to act the miracle. Does that make sense? You have to do it, but God does it through your doing, right? Let me give you maybe a helpful illustration. Say you were flying on a plane, and the announcement was made over the intercom, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, passengers, we have an announcement to make. Uh, you, you make a choice. Would you, we're, we're, we're about to crash. Uh, or we're flying and we need some help. Would you like to lose your left wing or your right wing? What do you think? What would you say? Nothing, right? I want both wings. I prefer both, right? No plane can fly with one wing. And that's, that's how the Christian life operates. 
you can't not you can't lose self-control you can't deject that but you also can't deject relying on christ it's not one or the other it's not well just let go and let god or just work with all your might and grit your teeth and figure it out the christian life needs both you need both self-control and self-reliance on god again jerry bridges writes this god enables us to do the work but he does not do the work for us the Christian life is not a choice between being active or stagnant, working or waiting. It is dependent discipline upon grace. Um, like usual, many people don't write it better than the Apostle Paul. If there's ever a verse worth having in your brain in this area, I recommend Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says it poetically and in the most helpful way. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 uh, says this. It just listen. This is so helpful. It's the verse I always think of, and I think that's how you, I need to talk, just like this. So Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13 uh, says this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So who should work it out? Well, you. It's command, right? Work it out. And then notice the little word for. What does for mean? It means because. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So who's supposed to work out the Christian life? You. But when, you're, when you're doing that, who gets credit for doing all the work? Not me. It's God who works in you. So your working is evidence of God's, I'm sorry, yeah, your working is evidence of God's working, and he gets the glory. Does that make sense? So that's how, that's how you run well. That's how you have self-control. That's, that's what an athlete does. They exercise self-control, and you do that by working out your salvation, knowing that it is God working in you. So the question is then, so how do we run well? That's true if I exercise these things. How do I do that? And Paul's going to give us two acts of training that I think are very helpful from this text. The first one is remembering the reward. Look at the end of verse 25 and 26. Paul says, they do it, these athletes, right? These Olympians, these training, people training. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. So I do not run aimlessly. Uh, again, according to history, according to these Isthmian games, we have a lot of accounts of what happened there. Uh, what you would win is you would receive, well, literally a, a crown, like, like a wreath around your head, a woven crown together. Uh, they think from like celery branches and flowers, so why would you use celery? Because it's green and pretty, but not for very long. Be very stinky later. Uh, winners also receive, to catch this, a, this is better than our Olympics, just throwing it out there. Uh, winners also receive a lifetime free of, a lifetime of tax exemption. Hello, sign me up for that game. Uh, freedom from serving in the military, because Roman people were, you're ushered in, right? Free tuition for education and a statue of yourself along the path to the stadium. So maybe that last one would be kind of not my favorite. I don't want to really be seen by people all the time. But the crown, the Isthmian crown, that's what you want. You could hang it on your head. People would look, hey, that guy won the crown. But of course, as you imagine, when your grandkids come, you would say, well, kids, look who I did for this crown. I won, I won this race and I did great. Well, Grandpa, that's great, but your record got smoked three years ago, so way to go. Nobody, we're not really proud of you at all. Maybe, maybe you should try harder next time, right? It's, oh, I guess that, that, that crown's kind of worthless now, right? Every medal, every crown just 
kind of withers away. But that was the prize. That's what they were, they were aiming for was the crown. And Paul said that the Christian life, the Christian race, the, the crown we receive is imperishable. It's infinitely better. So to do discipline, to, to run the Christian life, to have self-control, to have discipline for discipline's sake will drive you insane. If there's no reward for our labors here on earth, your strength will just be sapped. It'd be for nothing. The crown of the Christian life is imperishable. The, re- the reward at the end of the race is far better than a thousand worlds of riches and pleasures and joy and glory. And one of the ways that God strengthens and fuels our running is by the promise of reward. Have you considered that? God promises you reward to enable you to run better. Let me give you an example. In Luke chapter 14, probably my most, one of the most helpful ones, Jesus talks about inviting uh, the poor, the weak, right? The crimple, invite them to your dinner, right? And you're like, really, these people? They're nuts, Jesus. They're weird people. What do I want to invite them for? And Jesus says, oh, well, they can't pay you back. Oh, good, even better, right? Well, what's the point? This is what Jesus says. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So what's the motivation? Jesus says, can't give you anything. But do you know who will? My Father will give you everything. Is that a motivation to do it? Darn right it is. How about Matthew chapter 6? What did Jesus say? Pray in secret. Give in secret. Fast in secret so nobody sees. Well, why? Well, because your Father in heaven sees and he will reward you. So what's the point? It's for the reward, right? You're, well, God sees, and that's why I'm doing it. I, he's going to honor me for this, right? That's, that's the reward. Perhaps Hebrews chapter 11, probably one of my favorite texts um, in regard to this issue. Hebrews chapter 11 Verse 6 writes this. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So it is not sin. It is not wrong to think we just have to obey for obedience sake. Don't think about reward. That's wrong. Just obey because you want to. I think there's truth to that. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Right? But we also obey because I, he's going to reward me. He'll take care of me. So I think that fuels our obedience. Does that make sense? I think both need to be understood and held rightly. Paul says this, that I, I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. Instead, Paul has his eyes fixed upon the reward of glory. Friends, Jesus' resurrection guarantees yours. His heaven will be your heaven. So the question is, do you long for heaven? Do you long to see Christ? He's your reward. Perhaps when you plan a vacation and you're anything like me, you think about that vacation all the time. Gosh, she went a long day. What do you think? Now I'd love to sit at that beach right now and take my shoes off in the sand. Don't you think about that? I sure do. I'm going there in August thinking, man, some long days at FedEx. I would love to be at the beach right now. Right? Does that motivate you? It should. I think that's good. How much more should heaven motivate us here? Shouldn't heaven and the glory of Christ be at the forefront of our minds every day? And if you're like me, what a tragedy it is 
that we do not think more of heaven than we do of our temporary time here on earth. We need God's grace to inflame our hearts for heaven more. It ought to be the routine of our every day to think about our eternal day. And when you, like me, forget the majesty, the beauty of Christ, days when you have a frustrating day, a tiresome day, and you're fixed upon the earth, the frustration, everything that anchors you in, like your schedules and your work and whatever it may be, I want you to hear probably the greatest words, I think, from an earthly man probably ever spoken, named Robert Murray Machane. If you, if you do a, 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 a yearly Bible reading plan, you'd probably do his. Robert Murray Mache, as a pastor in Scotland, he wrote this. For every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. That's the counsel. So every day you are charged to remember Jesus Christ. He is your treasure. He is your joy. He is your glory. Whom have I in heaven but him? There is nothing earth I desire besides him. A day in his court is better than a thousand elsewhere. His steadfast love is better than life. Your God is great and he is greatly to be praised. The Bible says that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the firstborn from the dead, the root of Jesse, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. At his name, every knee will bow. He rules the nations with a rod of iron. He sits at the right hand of the Father. All nations are but a drop in the bucket to your Christ. That's the Christ you should look to. Everything is small compared to him, isn't it? And that's what it means to walk by faith. We talk about the Bible says walk by faith, not by sight. Well, that's what that means. That you trust what you've read here and you bank your life on it. When things aren't going the way that you think, you bank your life on this. You walk by faith in the word. You bank on unseen realities revealed through Christ. And because he's risen, you can trust his word. However, there are times when the world chokes out your faith, does it not? Do you ever doubt? Been there. I have. Have you ever wondered, is he really that good? Can we even trust him? When something bad happens, what do you immediately think? God must not be real. Don't you do that? We all have what has been called, we have heart atheism. This is just unbelief lingering in your heart. What do you do when you have doubt or despair? How do you escape? I've mentioned, I don't know how many times, but my favorite book is called Pilgrim's Progress. And it's literally about the progress, right? The Christian life, the endurance. And there's a there's a scene where Christian and his friend Hopeful are on the path to the celestial city, and that, like always, they wander off the path, which sounds very familiar. And they are captured by a giant named Giant Despair. And they are locked in his castle called Doubting Castle. And in the castle, they are chained, they are tormented, they are feared, they feel hopeless, they are lost, they are threatened with death, they are threatened with suicide. Like, this is what depression does. Despair makes you think these things. Right? You feel hopeless and lost. And at one point, they figure out, they're praying all night about how they can escape. And here is what Christian says, how they escape from this dungeon. I want you to hear these words from John Bunyan. What a fool I am to lay here in a stinking dungeon when I could just as easily walk at liberty. In my coat next to my heart, I have a key called promise. 
I am persuaded it will open any lock in Doubting Castle. So how do you escape doubt and despair? The key of promise. What's the key of promise? It's in your lap. This is how you escape doubt. This is how you escape fears. This, this is the key. 1 John 5, 4 says this, For everyone who has been born of God, so those who run the race, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. That's the key of promise. That's how you escape doubt and fear. Faith in God's promises opens every lock in Doubting Castle. Faith looks to Christ revealed through His Word. It trusts what has been written for us. And by faith, we receive the imperishable reward. A longing for Christ here will sweeten every mile that we run. And paradoxically, as you run to Christ, you find that you rest in Christ. Isn't that how it works? The more you run towards Christ, the more you think, I'll just rest more. Trusting in Him is how you run faster, and yet it's how you rest. In our running, we find resting. There's grace for every falling runner. There's power for every fainting believer. And there is an unstoppable word of promise reserved for you. Just a side note on that. There is, there's one reason primarily why we encourage, why I encourage, why many of the leaders here do, encourage Sunday school attendance or Sunday evening gatherings or even Wednesday evening gatherings. It's to help gather your gaze to look up. Quit looking down, look up. Look up. Look, up, look to Christ. Look up more. Look up together, right? And here's a, a common thought. Maybe you've had this. This is, not, this is just a, a thought. Maybe you've thought... You know, I don't really need help running. I'm doing okay. I don't need, like, I mean, I do need help, but like, I'm okay. I want to gently uh, correct that. I think that is a very self-oriented view of the Christian life. Let me explain what I mean. The Christian life is a community project, isn't it? It's not, you're not a lone ranger. And if you are, that's dangerous. You need a community of people. Oftentimes, the very act of your coming is God's means of growing somebody else. That's why you come. And then as you're doing so, you find as he's running better, well, so am I. That's funny how that works, isn't it? Your coming is often a means of growing somebody else. Your input, your comment, your prayer, your presence is more than just about you. That's why church membership is essential. Belonging to a church, you have others committed to you to pray for. You have your leaders to pray for. You have a body to belong to. So we must ask ourselves, who are those among us who need to be encouraged? Do I need to be encouraged? Do I need someone to encourage me? That's how we run the Christian life well. We look and remember the reward. Lastly, Paul says we must remain in the fight. Look at verse 27. Paul speaks of a, a dreadful reality. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What is Paul talking about about being disqualified? Isn't that a, a frightening word? He said we must discipline ourselves to keep ourselves under control so we aren't disqualified. The Corinthians would easily understand, again, to train, to uh, to be disciplined for the race that they would know to work out, to eat well, they would know that. So they wouldn't be disqualified. Uh, 1980, at the age of 26, this is a humorous story, so bear with me. Rosie 
Ruiz finished first in the women's division of the Boston Marathon. Good job. She received a medal, a laurel wreath, and a silver bowl. However, eight days later, she was stripped of her rewards because they learned that she actually cheated the race. It was noted that during her awarding, she did not appear very sweaty. Her hair looked the same, and her face was not flush. After speaking to many spectators and racers alike, they discovered that she was in none of the pictures. Where's she at? These pictures. I don't see any. All the racers kept thinking, I don't know who she was. It was then discovered that Rosie actually took the subway during the race, pretend she had a sprained ankle. People asked her on the train, well, what are you on the train? Oh, I sprained my ankle. I, 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 I just want to see it. Okay. Took the train all the way to the last mile, got off and just walked out and ran and won. Smoke, she smoked everyone else. And she was, of course, disqualified. Likewise, in the Christian life, we risk the possibility of being disqualified. What does disqualified mean? I think contextually, if you, if you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks a lot about laying a foundation, building on it, right? Gold, wood, metal, precious stones, those kind of things. He says you'll receive a reward, but if anyone's work is burned up, you'll suffer loss, though you will be saved. So I think contextually this seems to be not that a Christian can be damned. It seems to be implying that you can, yeah, you can finish the race, but you can finish super poorly and lose everything except your life. You'll cross into heaven with singed underwear, perhaps. And that's not really something to be proud of. Paul's speaking about those who are repentant people who actually are repentant believers in Christ, who have forsaken their sin, and yet they are in danger of losing rewards. So what must we do to avoid being disqualified? Look what Paul said. He disciplines his body, keeps it under control. Paul knows that the greatest enemy of himself is not other people. It's not those heathens I work with. It's not that guy. It's not my neighbor. It's not, it's not ISIS. They're not my biggest problem. Who's Paul's greatest problem? His flesh. His old man, as the King James calls it. His old man, his flesh must be conquered. Uh, in the original language, Paul says here that he must strike himself, or it actually says he must blacken his eye. So referring to boxing. He must make his body a slave to himself. Isn't that a rather odd way of speaking? Why is Paul so ferocious towards himself? In the world, it is common to find that the, the passions of your heart and the things you want to do should just be in your own sinful hands, right? What's the phrase you hear? Follow your heart. That is demonic logic, isn't it? If you know your heart, you should not follow it. <laughs> your heart is deceitful. But the Bible has another story. Your heart is the problem. Uh, perhaps you know what, what the Trojan horse is. It was this fake horse that got escorted very well into the building. And inside, there was the enemy. They left out and conquered the, the castle, right? You are a Trojan horse. Your greatest enemy is your heart. It's your flesh. It's within. And instead of tending and coddling his sin, Paul basically aims to make his flesh a prisoner of war. He seeks to give the death sentence upon his own sin. Yes, the world, the flesh, and the devil are in a triad to chip away at you and to drive you to sin. 
And if, if Paul says, I have to discipline myself, friends, how much more do we need to do that? If Paul needs help, do you need help? I'll be the first line to I, I need some help, and Paul needs help. This, again, is another sign of a true believer. Warring with your sin. What are you mastered by? Who is your, who is your master? What are you under control of? Do you have desires and flesh that lead you constantly? Uh, one of my favorite Anglicans, which is probably odd because I'm, I'm a Baptist, but named J.C. Ryle, he made the remark that the Christian life would be, would be so much easier if sin was much more obvious. So sin doesn't always look like, like if sin were to leap out in front of you and say, hey, I'm sin, I'm here to lead you to hell. What would you do? Okay, see ya. We walk away, right? But instead, sin comes at you like a Judas kiss. It's deceitful, isn't it? Sneaky. It's not a glaring, hey, I'm here to damn you. It's it's sneaky. It starts quiet, doesn't it? So for those who claim Christ and yet unite themselves to sin with no remorse, no sorrow, no hatred, no dejection of their sins, the Bible says they actually don't know Christ. John Owen said this, I don't understand how a man could be a true believer unto whom sin is not the greatest burden and sorrow and trouble. Friends, be sure of this, no hatred of sin, no love for Christ. So Christians are those who are mastered by Christ. Listen to this. This is very helpful. The difference between an unconverted person and a converted man is not that one has sins and the other does not. The difference is one takes part with his sins against a dreaded God, and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his dreaded sins. Do you hear the difference? Oftentimes believers wrestle with assurance, am I really saved? Because you think, man, I keep falling in this area. Keep, why do I keep doing that stinking sin? You ever think that? Why, do I keep, why am I so weak here? What's wrong with me? Ironically, brothers and sisters, those are marks of a believer. I can't stand my sin. Why am I so fallen? That's how Christians talk. Unbelievers don't care about their sin. So having a struggle is a good sign. 1 John 3, 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. So the question you must ask yourself is, are there moments in your life when you notice yourself you are, you're weaker in certain areas? Uh, when people go to war, they study the enemy. You must study yourself. When are you weak? When are you easily tempted? What areas are, are you weaker at? When does your mind wander? How do you fall here? You need to study yourself and be at war. Again, another reason why I belong to a local church is this reason. How do you expect to grow in the fruit of the Spirit if you don't walk with sinners all the time? You want to learn how to love people better? Join a local church. They'll frustrate you all the time. They will. And you go, man, I'm wicked. I got mad at the silliest thing, right? Want to learn self-control? Live with sinners. That's the local church is meant to help you grow in those things, right? That's the point. So closing, how do we run? By faith, remembering the reward and remaining in the fight. But isn't that tiring? Rest in this, that the God who gives faith can make your faith persevere. Your assurance is not grounded in your believing, but in believing that the God who saved you is the God who will keep you. The Father will not, will not lose a child. The Son will never lose one of His sheep. The Spirit will never lose those who've been born again. 
your believing and fighting is evidence that God has given you new life. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So rest upon the arms of sovereign grace. If Christ has taken away your sins, he will also take you to glory. I want to read you this hymn as we close. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Fully arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass. For I know thy power will keep me till I'm home with thee at last. Let's pray.